it loses that it loses something. There's a little bit of magic with some inconsistencies. I don't know what it is. Uh, I know it's a very personal thing, but I think a lot of us can agree on the leather part at the very least. We don't want something that looks the same color all the way across or has no life to it or has no depth to it. It's just completely uniform, almost robotic and lifeless. Hello and welcome to the Leathercraft Masterclass with me, Phil. And in this Q&A session, I'm going to be going through some questions that have been submitted by you guys on Instagram. Now, if you're not on Instagram and you wanna see me go live or you wanna join me for a chat at some point, then go on there at Leathercraft Masterclass and give me a follow. And if you do enjoy this video and you gain some value or gain some new knowledge, then don't forget to let me know in the comments below and also give me a thumbs up to let me know that you enjoy the video. So without further ado, let's go live and then start getting through these questions. Checking the connection, you are now live. Hey guys, how you doing? People have started joining, that's good to see. And literally within a split second, there's 38 people on here. That's crazy. Hello, hello, how's it going? And I have selected one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine questions, an odd number. Okay, so let's go straight into the Q&A questions. Uh, and the first question that I've chosen is about pricking irons. Okay, so pricking irons, a common, uh, a common tool to get questions about which pricking iron, what size and all that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of the craft revolves around it, especially if you're in hand stitching, of course. So resharpening a pricking iron. So resharpening a European style pricking iron with a dented tooth. Now it does happen sometimes, uh, people damage the teeth on pricking irons, either from being dropped on the floor, or perhaps you thought uh, you would have a go at, you know, marking your leather on a paring stone, but you've hit it with a little bit too much gusto, and, uh, and you've, you've gone through and you've hit the granite or the marble underneath or whatever you're using, and you've chipped a tooth. Usually if it's very hard steel, it will chip rather than deform. Um, or you could have had something underneath your leather. There's a million different reasons, but it does happen from time to time. So how do you deal with that outside of obviously buying a new set of pricking irons or a new pricking iron? What I have done in the past, because you may have noticed, uh, if you guys can see, uh, I enjoy collecting vintage pricking irons. It's kind of a thing of mine. And many times they will come in, let's just say not the best condition, especially if they're near 100 years old. So sometimes the teeth need a little bit of repairing uh, and you can do this on brand new pricking irons as well, modern ones. What it involves is essentially grinding down all the teeth uh, until the mark, the dent, whatever it is, the chip has gone and it's leveled off. So you would get, say for example, uh, a diamond plate and you with the teeth placed down on there as if you were gonna prick mark the diamond plate and you would just move it backwards and forwards, say 10 times, turn it all the way around, do 10 times again, and keep going just to mitigate any bias you have on, uh, on each side. Just keep twisting it, moving it backwards and forwards, and grinding it down until you've basically got flat spots on all of them, but it's a consistent flat spot. Then what you can do is set it up in a vise, like a hobby vise, at the right angle, and then you can take a file, okay, a diamond file if it's a very hard steel, and then just go backwards and forwards, and you're creating a bevel on each side of the tooth, okay? So you have the tooth, instead of going to a point like it used to, it's now gonna look a little bit more like this, 
Okay, so it is repairable. It's easier on uh, vintage style pricking irons because the steel is generally softer. Um, so, you know, that's one way of doing it. It's a little bit complicated, a little bit fiddly. Most times I would recommend actually getting a new set. Uh, however, if it's driving you that, that crazy, but even if you chip uh, a tooth sometimes, just double check that it actually makes a blind bit of difference to your leather work because sometimes it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Or instead of prick mark, you know, pricking through until it hits the surface, pricking through until it goes beyond the leather underneath. So it kind of protrudes a little bit more. So everything has gone through and you've got consistent holes in your leather. So that's another way of doing it as well. Okay, so uh, next question, moving on to the next question. Uh, I'm gonna cross that off to make sure I don't get lost. Easily happens. Which size pricking iron, another one for pricking irons, which size pricking irons for watch straps? So that's a good question. Um, a lot of it depends on personal taste. I don't think there's a particular right or wrong when it comes to selecting a size for watch straps, but generally speaking, it's gonna be less than things like bags, uh, clutches, large wallets. So I tend to pursue 2.7 millimeters all below, and that's my personal preference. Can do three millimeters, but that's getting a little large. And do remember that generally, not always, generally when the SPI or stitches per inch or the stitch spacing goes up, your pricking iron gets thicker and thicker prongs because it's usually you're going wider so you can have thicker thread. So sometimes if you're creating a very fine watch trap where you've got filler in the center and then there's only a small space between the filler and the crease line, you know, you haven't got a lot of room, so you can't really use a large pricking arm with wide prongs on there uh, without cutting into the filler or indeed the, uh, the crease line itself. So that's something to be aware of. But it also depends on the watch strap that you're using. If you've got something that's a little bit more formal um, to pair with a watch that's, say, like a JLC Reverso or, you know, a dress watch is what I'm basically saying then you don't want anything with a large chunky stitch that's gonna distract from the aesthetic of the watch itself. So you never want the watch strap to be louder than the watch itself. Ideally, if you've got a very conservative watch, a finely made watch, high horology watch, you don't want a very shouty strap that distracts attention because all it's doing is one, retaining the watch on your wrist, but it's also simply a frame for the watch itself. Okay, um, but that's personal preference. If you have a very loud, shouty watch with a lot of complications and colors, you can get a little bit more um, overt with your styling and use bigger, bigger stitches, something that's a little bit louder, uh, perhaps contrast stitches and things like that. So uh, generally speaking, I like a smaller pricking iron for watch straps. Uh, it's also easier to stitch with a smaller pricking iron because it just takes up less space. So that would be my recommendation, 2.7 and under, but it also depends on your style. Watches that are large, you know, like Panerai, um, very masculine style watches tend to have, tend to favor something that is, you know, like a chunkier watch strap, no filler, larger stitches, things like that. So it really depends on the style. Okay, so third question. So moving away from pricking irons, uh, how do you set yourself apart in the world of leathercraft? 
How do you set yourself apart in the world of leathercraft? Interesting question. Um, there tends to be, you know, if you, if you look on social media and you look online, sometimes you'll see a lot of people having a very, very similar style. And it can be quite difficult, difficult to differentiate, different, where's my words going? It can be quite difficult to differentiate yourself sometimes. Um, especially if you look on Etsy, for example, put in handmade watch strap or handmade card, leather card holder or, you know, handmade wallet or something like that. Uh, and you'll see a lot of very similar styles. Uh, but then look at what really stands out to you. Is, is there something that stands out from the pages and pages and pages of, of people making something very similar? What was it about that that stood out to you? Was it the color? Was it the photography? Was it the, the way they advertised it? Was it the design? Was it something that you would never have thought of? And perhaps make notes on what it is about that particular artisan that stood out to you uh, and maybe learn from that. But I would always say identify a strong sense of style or personal design, uh, an indicator that's different from everybody else. What you would like to aim for would be, say if you're on Instagram and you're scrolling through pictures and you see a picture of someone's work and you go, I know exactly who that is. I don't need to look at the name, I know who that is. And it's not the photography style, it's not the, the color of the leather, for example. Uh, it's not that I saw their name, but I know who that is instantly. And you all know like creators, designers, artisans, who you, could, who you just know who they are just by looking at the picture. That's something you really wanna emulate because when you have a very strong sense of personal style and people can identify you immediately, uh, it's gonna be very difficult for people to copy your work and you're standing out quite easily for just being yourself. So of course, when you're starting out in the beginning, you're either taking inspiration from other people's designs and you're kind of finding yourself a little bit, uh, or you're following tutorials like the Leathercraft Masterclass and you're following exactly how I teach it. But eventually you wanna start going through a phase of uh, experimentation. There's a great book by Robert Greene uh, called Mastery that talks about that, of doing things by the book, then you go through a phase like your adolescence of experimenting and rebelling a little bit and testing to see what works and what doesn't work and what's true and what's not true. And then eventually, once you discover that personal style, you begin to embody the sense of mastery. So I would always say, try and get your personal design. If you're new to the craft, other ways of hacking that are Making, uh, making use of a, very, of a particular color, for example. Um, some people make leather goods and they are always green or they are always yellow or there's always a funky combination or there's always like a one red seam somewhere on the design. Uh, a good example of that would be Christian Louboutin uh, shoes. If you've never heard of Christian Louboutin shoes, uh, most famous for heels, but if I say red soles, even if you don't know the name, you'd probably recognize shoes, stilettos being worn and the soles are red underneath. Now, that's not really a real, you know, sense of finding your style and all that kind of thing. It's literally just making them red. It stood out. They have their own design aesthetic. They're very unique. They're very feminine designs. They're very French designs. Uh, so they do stand out in, their, in that way. But just by changing the sole to red, now they stand out. So sometimes it can be just changing something quite obvious about what you do. 
so that you can stand out from the crowd and be different and get noticed, which is what you want to do, especially if you uh, sell your leather work. Question number four is what thickness of leather do you need for box making? So what thickness of leather do you need for box making? So leather box making, actually I did a tutorial, solid leather box making. Essentially where you have stiff, thick vegetable tan leather and you create a solid structure box with a lid, okay? So obviously you can't use soft chrome tan leather or thin skins or anything like that except for a lining. Uh, it needs to be made from very firm leather. Uh, and it's the firmness that re is really the most important part of that, not just the thickness. It just needs to be thick enough to stitch through. As long as it's firm enough, that's the most important thing. So if you're making a very small box, you can get away with um, between two and three millimeters, depending on how, how finely you can stitch. But if you're making a larger box, you're gonna be wanting to move into four, five or beyond. And in order to do that, you're gonna to need to laminate layers so gluing layers of leather, uh, two to three if necessary, pretty much like plywood really, and that will help to stiffen it. So it really depends on the size of the box, it depends uh, on the firmness of the leather, and uh, also your SPI. So you know if you're gonna have a thinner leather, um, you need a smaller amount of stitches per inch, so something that's gonna be much finer as well. So yeah, solid leather box making is a course on Leathercraft Masterclass if you're looking to learn how to do that. So the next question is, uh, how important is digital marketing for a leather business? How important is digital marketing for a leather business? Well, I think very, very important if, uh, if you're looking to sell online. Now, if you're going to trade shows, if you're selling through word of mouth, uh, if you go to markets to sell on market stalls and things like that, then digital marketing, if that's, you know, if you run on, if you've got you know, like a two year wait list and all you use is word of mouth, if you're in a very lucky situation, then digital marketing really isn't going to be that important for you. But if you want to run a business, an online business through social media, through email, through your website, then of course, uh, digital marketing is, marketing is extremely important from the photography, making use of video, making use of the correct platforms where you believe your customers are going to be, how to get in touch with your customers, how to be in front of them, where their attention is going, how your business can be there. Uh, so a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that if you make just really good leather goods and you wanna sell online, all you have to do is just make really good stuff, photograph it nicely and it will sell itself. If only it were that simple, um, you are, obviously your work has to stand out. It has to be of a good quality standard to match the price point that you're charging for your customers. But you really do have to do your homework on how to learn and improve and master uh, digital marketing and marketing in general, really. So how important is it? Very important if you're looking to run an online business. So I'm gonna scroll down because I did uh, see a question there. Oh God, we're scrolling down quite a bit here. All right, hi Phil, you mentioned a while ago that you'd be reshaping the German round knife at some point. Any plans of, of getting to that soon? No, <laughs> I don't. I had an idea of a great video. It's just, uh, I will get around to it at some point. Uh, it's just a really big job. And, uh, the challenge, the real challenge of that is teaching it in a way where a beginner 
who thinks they're better than they actually are won't cut their fingers off and then blame me. So it's really, really difficult to, uh, to come up with a video that I could put out. And it would be like a YouTube video uh, where someone's not gonna copy it and injure themselves. So it's gotta be idiot proof. And that's <laughs> not saying that people are idiots, but it has to be you know, so, so safety forward. And I need some more ideas on how to do that because when you put it out into the world, uh, if anything bad happens, it comes back on you. So uh, I would love to get it out, but uh, time and uh, difficulty making it safe. I know I teach uh, how to use the round knife in a lot of my courses. For example, uh, techniques of the trunk handle. There's been so many courses, handle making for the Lancet rolled handle um, on how to use it in the Turenne luxury handbag, the ostrich skin handbag. I use the round knife. Uh, and I always teach safety in that, but it's within a more controlled environment. It's not put out to the entire world. It's students who we know are interested in leather craft, who are looking to a more advanced techniques. Um, so it's a little bit easier on that platform, obviously. Next question, what's your thoughts on unstitched or minimally stitched watch straps? Okay. So another question about watch straps, last one was about what pricking iron to use. This one is about uh, minimally stitched watch straps. I'll try and find an example to show uh, for you guys on, um, on YouTube. It's uh, usually minimally stitched watch straps are usually where, say for example, someone's using shagreen or stingray, okay? Very difficult and challenging to stitch, at least well. Um, it's usually where the watch strap where the lugs are, near where the lugs are, there's a stitch going around there, and usually a V-stitch at the very bottom, the tip of the, uh, of the watch strap. And on the other side, there'll be something similar near the lugs and the other end near the buckle or deployment clasp. So there's no, essentially there's no stitching along the sides because it's very difficult to do. And it kind of ruins the aesthetic sometimes depending on the type of chagrin it is. What do I think of it? It's born out of necessity in, in something like shagreen because it's difficult. When it comes to regular leather, leaving it unstitched and relying solely on the mercy of the glue that you're using, it can work. If you're using uh, a watch brand like Young'un's uh, or another brand like... Um, I don't know, mundane, uh, you know, something very simple in design, something very uh, Nordic in aesthetic, think Dieter Rams, Braun, that kind of thing. That kind of look, it kind of works really, really well. And I don't look at watch straps as, you know, something, like no one ever gets handed down a watch strap from their great-great-grandfather, you know, here's your watch strap from a great-grandpa. It's just never gonna happen, right? It's a consumable item. Unless they never used it, the next generation didn't use it, and this generation doesn't use it. It's a semi-consumable item uh, due to the wear and tear that it goes through. Wallets, very similar uh, due to the wear and tear that they go through. So it's not an everlasting item. It's not like an attache case that can be over 100 years old and still useful and repairable. So is it absolutely necessary to have a stitch? Not really. Uh, it adds to the aesthetic, it de definitely adds to the durability because it can come apart if, uh, if you're using the wrong glues, for example. So for you guys who've watched Techniques of Adhesion on the Leathercraft Masterclass, you know all about that. But edge paint is definitely something I would probably have on the side as well because it, at least it covers the seams. 
so they can't get as much wear to start coming apart and it has a little mild effect of holding everything together so I would definitely use edge paint if I was not using a stitch along the sides. So uh, watch your glue technique and use edge paint as well. Okay, Copperhead Soft Goods says, what leather or thickness do you recommend for NATO straps? So what leather or thickness do you recommend for NATO straps? So Instagram live question there. First of all, you'll need to get your, your watch, your donor watch, and you'll need some, uh, some calipers there, uh, dial calipers, and then just measure the distance between the case of the watch and the spring bar. Okay, so that's your, that's your absolute maximum. And you might have like 1.5 millimeters, let's say, for argument's sake. Um, that's the thickest strip of leather that could fit through there, but it also has to bend. Um, and if it's too tight, it doesn't want to bend very well and you'll have it bowing at the top. So you, you might want to switch to like 1.2. So it depends on the strap. If you've got a little bit more room, you can go thicker, especially if it's a larger watch, a more rugged looking watch, a more masculine watch. Um, then you can use a, a thicker leather. As far as what type of leather, I mean, your world's your oyster. Usually I would go for something like uh, vegetable tanned leather, maybe retanned, but more vegetable tanned leather. And you want to cut the strip uh, in line up the back, ideally, of, uh, of the hide and make sure that there's no stretch in it. Because if you cut it widthways or from a shoulder, for example, where the grain is looser, the person will put it on at a certain point. Uh, within a few days or weeks of wearing it, they're having to go up to the next one and the next one until, until it eventually settles down. That's sometimes why if I'm creating a NATO strap out of leather for, say, a 20 millimeter lug width, I'll make it at 21 and then I will stretch it on the table at least overnight so I'm taking some of the stretch out of it. And then when it relaxes, it hardly relaxes at all. And it's taken a new length and makes it more stretch resistant. And then you measure it and it's nearer 20 millimeters, which is what you need. So you make it oversized, pre-stretch it. You can wet it if you want to do that as well. Uh, that's another way of doing it. So a little technique there. Uh, what can I use for inner supports to give a specific form in a bag straps, in bag straps? What can I use for inner supports? Not 100% I understand the question before I go down that route, unfortunately. Uh, what's the best technique for creasing a turned edge is the next question. So this was submitted on Instagram stories. The best technique for creasing a turned edge, I think they were also specifically talking about a screw crease or adjustable creaser, but it's the same for both. Typically you don't, okay? Typically you don't crease a folded edge. So a turned edge or folded edge, for those who don't know, instead of having two pieces of leather put together and then you stitch it along the top on a cut edge, which you can burnish or edge paint, a turned edge is where you thin the edge on one side and you can fold it over and then stitch across that fold to hold it in place. So the leather, the grain never ends, okay? So the, the edge is the grain as well. So a turned edge, my favorite technique for edges, typically you don't because it's uh, a crease is more associated with a cut edge. And if you want to differentiate your uh, turned edge, which requires more technique and skill to do, you don't want to make it look like a cut edge because originally in saddlery, it was designed for practical reasons as well as decoration where you'd, 
use that line and the compression of the crease to compress the leather, reduces the amount of moisture absorbed from the side, from the, uh, from the edge. Um, but it also helps prevent fraying, as it were, and the leather becoming more fibrous through wear. So you compress it down, especially with wax finishing on the edge, and uh, it gives a more durable edge. But when it comes to turned edge, you typically don't do that. Um, I have done in the past. I think I've done that in the course probably at some point. But generally, I don't. But if I do a crease line on a turned edge, I don't do it between the thread and the turned edge. I do it on the opposite side of the thread. So it really frames the stitches well, but it allows the turned edge to still say, hey guys, I'm a turned edge, I ain't no cut edge. So it's a little bit more of a flex in that sense because it's not easy to do a turned edge, it requires more skill. So don't make it look like something that requires less skill, but that's personal preference. So historically, um, it wasn't uh, such a thing to crease a turned edge. But if you do, here's a tip, keep your eye on the guide because when it's rounded, much like if you've edge beveled leather and then gone to crease it, it's, you know, a 90 degree cut edge is the easiest one to crease. When it's rounded, it's very easy for that guide to actually start coming onto the leather and then you've marked it and there's not much you can do after that. So uh, if you do like the aesthetic of it and you want to do that, that's absolutely fine. But just be aware of that, uh, that guide on the side accidentally coming on, especially with a uh, hot crease, there's very little that you are going to do about that. Okay, so one of my favorites, one of my favorites um, that I'm gonna answer here, I, I really love this question. Is there space for inconsistencies and imperfections in fine leather handcrafting? Okay, so when we do our craft, in fine leather craft, we are trying to elevate our skills and create something truly beautiful that showcases craftsmanship, history, heritage, and, and luxury, okay? So within that realm, is there space for inconsistency and imperfection? Yes and no, okay? So let me explain a little bit by what I mean. When it comes to the materials that we use, okay? So if you, if you think of the most common materials that we use, such as leather and thread, uh, most often than not, you will choose, or we as crafters love working with leather where you can see a little bit of variation, where you can see a little bit of inconsistency, where you can see where the leather is, maybe there's growth rings on the leather for the shoulder on a hide, for example, or you can see that the leather is dyed in some places a little bit darker and a little bit lighter, and there's some variation there and then some depth. Mother Nature gives us these inconsistencies and we kind of applaud her for it. We, we celebrate the inconsistencies of leather, much like, you know, this table that I'm working on is made of MDF, okay? Uh, it's practically all wood. It's made of wood fibers pressed, compressed together under pressure with resins and adhesives to create something that's, that's quite durable and useful. It looks like wood, it's got the same color as wood. It's like a, a dark brown-ish, but it's not beautiful, is it? But if you look at the wood behind me on this beam here, it's 300 years old, okay? It's got inconsistencies, it's got cracks in there, there's knots from where there was branches. Uh, there's all sorts of imperfections going along. It's, as wood goes, if I went to a lumber yard to pick up a piece and I saw that, I'd laugh. 
But when people come in and they look at all the woodwork in here that's 300 years old, and they go, oh my God, look at the, the natural grain, it's old, it's traditional. You know, if I painted over that, I'd probably be arrested actually, but if I painted over that, it wouldn't be as beautiful because we like the inconsistencies. So when it comes to things like uh, thread, even like there are more consistent threads than filet chinois, which is what I use, a French linen thread. It's very old, traditional machines that they use, 200 years old, some of them uh, made in France. I actually don't mind a little bit of variation, a little bit, mind you. But, you know, because sometimes when you use a really consistent thread, especially synthetic threads, it loses that, it loses something. There's a little bit of magic with some inconsistencies. I don't know what it is. Uh, I know it's a very personal thing, but I think a lot of us can agree on the leather part at the very least. We don't want something that looks the same color all the way across or has no life to it or has no depth to it. It's just completely uniform, almost robotic and lifeless. Um, so when it comes to materials, yes, there is place for inconsistencies and imperfections. It's not like I'm, you know, I'm a, I still avoid marks in the leather and you know um, where the animal was scratched or something or a bite mark i still go around those ones i still choose the nice parts but i celebrate the inconsistencies so that we've got that beautiful richness of something that's truly natural when it comes to the personal side of the craft and the question was asked about me do i think there's space for inconsistencies in my work and imperfections in my work I always strive for perfection with the absolute knowledge that I will never attain it because I am from nature, I am imperfect, which means I cannot possibly create absolute perfection. It's not possible for me. But it's the pursuit of it, of constantly getting better and better and better and better and always looking for little tiny things that I could have done better or could have changed or adapted or done something different to improve upon next time. That's something I'm always striving for. And that really comes down to standards. Because if somebody has you know, average standards, they'll create average work and go, that's good enough. That's perfect for me. I'm happy with that. And if people are happy with that, that's fine. Then you might have someone who has a slightly higher standard and they hold themselves to a higher degree of work. And then you might have someone who's an absolute master of the craft in your, in your estimation. Uh, and that person may have no reachable standard whatsoever. In fact, every year upon year upon year, they're constantly improving, constantly getting better because they are always able to find these little inconsistencies and little imperfections and go, ha, huh, I wonder how I could get around that. I wonder how I could have improved that and done something a little bit different. Uh, and that's what kind of like, if you can enjoy that, if you can kind of hold on to that, and understand that it's part of the process and it's the journey towards perfection that is perfection, you know? So that's the way I look at it and I enjoy looking at things objectively and going, if I can still see a problem there, I can still find a solution. And it's those little solutions and adaptations that I can then employ next time that gives me true joy. So that's the way I look at it. So is there space for inconsistencies and imperfections? Yes, in the materials we use, but no, not in the mindset, but no one's perfect, but it's the pursuit of perfection, uh, which I really enjoy. Okay, so that's my favorite question. This one's a fun one. Uh, how hard would it be for you to make a Lady Dior handbag? So how hard would it be to make a Lady Dior handbag? 
the Lady Dior handbag is a famous design, iconic design. Uh, I believe it was probably made most famous by when the I think it was the first lady of France gifted one to Lady, Di lady Diana. I think it was called something different before, but it's now the Lady Dior. Uh, how difficult would it be? Difficulty-wise, I don't think it would be overly difficult, but it would be time-consuming more than anything because if you think about the amount of stitching that goes into the quilting, and it's not just like diamond stitching uh, like you see with Chanel. It's uh, stitching that's supposedly trying to emulate like a wicker, the back of a wicker chair. If you look closely, you'll probably recognize the design, uh, like those straw chairs, those wicker chairs. And it's that uh, volume of quilting going on. If you were to try and hand stitch that at the very least, it would take a long time. Not to mention the amount of turned edges on there. So I don't believe there's any raw edges on the bag itself. Uh, and it's made around a wooden form. So the amount of time that would be consumed trying to make it, I mean, you'd end up putting 120 hours in it after prototyping, after creating forms, uh, after testing and after all that stitching and you'd still end up with a fake Lady Dior bag. <laughs> if, that's, if that's something you don't mind, then go for it. But um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be quite challenging at the very least. Okay, so a um, couple questions here. Mason, Mason Anderson says, uh, refer cable thread versus flat braided, which poly cabled thread do you think is the best? which is the best. I mean, a lot of the top brands, they're all kind of very similar. Um, I know there's some by MySci uh, that I've tried. They're about the same as Wooter leather. I, fractionally, and it's probably just all in my head, Artisan Soul. Don't know why, it's not particularly expensive, but I've never had uh, any problems with it. Uh, I know on MySci, I know on uh, Wooter leather, in stitching, I do get sometimes when one of the little threads breaks, you get this twisting and unraveling going along and you have to change your thread. I've never had that with Artisan Soul, um, but uh, I don't really use uh, polyester that often. It really is, uh, if it's a necessity, for example, uh, if I'm making something that's gonna see high wear or something for the outdoors, then I will po possibly switch to uh, polyester thread, but it's not my preferred. Um, with regards, I think your question might also be asking cabled versus flat braided. I don't use flat braided thread, like tiger thread, don't really use that in my work. Uh, I don't like the aesthetic of it, but if I was making something for myself um, that required extreme toughness, then I'd at least consider it. Uh, Jeremy says, when lining leather in a folded position, how do you accurately trim to final size? Uh, well, what I would do is I would, I would get the lining leather and make it oversized, okay? Or at least longer or sometimes shorter, depending on which way you're bending it. Um, but just oversize and then you can bend and glue in the right position and then you trim up afterwards. It might be a little awkward to trim it, especially if it's in a very curved position. So you might need to find something like a, a wooden form that's curved and then you can cut it over it. So that's one way of doing that. All right, uh, so that was the last question. Guys, don't forget right now, leathercraftmasterclass.com. 
you can get a free tool guide and a free leather guide. So make sure you get onto the link below if you're on Instagram, it's going to be the link in bio. So all you have to do is put your email in and you'll get an instant link to a tool buyer's guide, 20 page article, which is gonna give you all the information you need to know which tools to buy, which tools probably a waste of money, depending on what point in your craft you're at. And of course, the leather selection video, which has helped so many people identify good quality leather uh, from poor quality leather, which is one of the essential skills in embarking on your journey in leather craft, especially fine leather craft. When you know what good quality is, you can identify it and you know what tests to do on samples, then you know exactly what you need to buy before even spending a dime. So that is the idea behind it. So it's a time saver and a money saver as well. All right, guys, thank you for joining my Instagram. Uh, if you do have any questions, don't forget to comment below on YouTube or shoot me a DM on Instagram. That's another way to contact me. If you wanna have a conversation or you have questions about Leathercraft or you're interested in the courses and you wanna know more information. But until next time, I'll see you in the next video. Thanks for watching, guys.